If you're leading change, you have to be curious about the people who are resisting. When you encounter resistance, what are the tools to dissolve resistance in a in an emotionally healthy way, not a manipulative way? Because we take it personally. That my experience is you can't stop that defensiveness. It's more like, okay, there's my defensiveness. What's on the other side of it? Can I can I let the defensiveness show up, get in me, but then what what's going to be helpful is what happens next. Hey, everybody. This week on the show, we're doing something a little different. We want to re-air one of our favorite episodes. Lindley and I both feel like this is one of the most significant episodes we've recorded because the multitude of pastors I know who are trying to figure out how to change their church without blowing up their church Mm -hmm. is just so massive. And Steve talks about, Steve Cuss talks about the anxiety that change creates and how to manage that anxiety as you manage change. Well, honestly, since we have aired this um, originally, I've started working with Visionary Studios, which is an architecture design firm that builds churches. I mean, primarily we design and build churches. I mean, every week we're dealing with pastors who are saying, how do we do this process and and keep the church united where they're not divisive? I mean, people all want different things. And so we live in change management. I also, I'll never forget the moment toward the end of the show. Mm-hmm. We, we're still talking about it. Mm-hmm. When Steve called you out for wanting to be somebody you're not. Yeah, so in the last three minutes... I had said, one of my goals is to be sweet. And he said, why would you do that if you're a challenger? And um, I mean, I still think about that because it's the only person who said, it's okay for you not to be sweet. Right. Like the only person, like no one has ever said to me before, it's okay to be you. And that's been a big wound in our marriage and we, we're still working through it is mm-hmm. that sometimes I feel like your challenger personality is a threat mm-hmm. to me or it could blow me up. Well, I just I feel like I had come to that conclusion that I should be sweet because that's what you need me to right. be, or that you should try to make it like tone it down a little bit, right? Uh, so, how do you work through that as a couple? I thought Steve had some really incredible things to say. Yeah, enjoy the show, Steve. Let's talk about change management because everybody who leads in the church is constantly navigating change. Yeah, uh, just begin with your own story. Have you ever led a church through a significant season of change? Yeah. Uh, definitely. And, um, like, as I think about it, 16 years as a, as a lead pastor, it's hard to think of a long season where it wasn't significant change. It just felt like the whole era was some kind of change, but at the beginning, uh, massive change. Cause I showed up like it was a five and a half year old church plant, about mm-hmm. 150 people meeting in an elementary school. You know, if you go to your church planning, um, conferences, they have a hierarchy of locations for your church plant. The movie theater is the best, high school theater, then high school gymnasium. And the, all the way to the bottom is the elementary cafeteria. It's really... <laughs> we started that's there. Where we started. We started. It's, I think it's really rough. Yes. Um, and so that's, that, was the, that was a change for the church. There was also a massive change for me. I'd never been a lead pastor before. So I was 34. And um, lots of change there. Like, like change is anxious... Obviously, my field being anxiety, leadership anxiety, change is anxious because anxiety is based on assumptions. And a lot of what makes people anxious during change is the things that they assume. So the guy that that planted the church was an experienced lead pastor. 
and he left and went and did something else. And then this rookie comes in mm. and this church has to get used to a guy that had never done it before. That's, uh, that was anxiety producing for them. I, I, I think one of the first moments I was really keenly aware of it is when I, I took us from one service to two services mm. and I ran into massive resistance. Um, that was, I don't know, maybe a year and a half into my leadership there. I was like, whoa, what? What happened in that situation was a huge mm. lesson for me is, is a lot of the people that resisted me um, were afraid that I would fail and they didn't want me to fail as the young guy. And so when I encountered the resistance, I still remember it. I held a big key leader meeting. And of course, I'd gotten my team and our elders on board, but this was like for the, the key volunteers of the church. There were probably 40 people in the room and I announced mm. this exciting, we're going to two services, you know. And just boy, it was like a like a bombshell in the room. Um, I call it stepping on a leadership landmine. I didn't know there was a landmine in the room. Stepped on it, and we all kind of blew up. And uh, the the problem the the problem with change management is oftentimes when a leader encounters resistance, they double down, and all that does is build more resistance in people. And so you have to move in that moment to curiosity. And so in that particular moment, I was mm. able to do it and just to get curious, what's going on? What's the, the concern? And it came out that, well, we've done this so many times. We really don't want this to be your first major leadership decision. Like this is not going to go well. So I, I had to, once you know someone's fear, you can normally decide how to lead through it. And so once I realized, oh, this is amazing. They're not resisting me. They're actually trying to protect mm. me. It feels like resistance, but they're trying to protect me. And so then just be able to say to them, look, I'm not afraid of failing. I, I don't mind being wrong, but if we don't go to two, we're never going to know. And, and then we kind of went through it and we, we stayed at two services or more since then. Can you describe what double down looks like? You said most leaders in change, they get resistance and they double down. Oh man. I mean, the stereotypical situation is really, it's truly heartbreaking. You've got your old saints that tithed and volunteered for 40 years you've got your young pastor that shows up because the church says they want change. Now, the word change, there's so much assumption around that, right? So what the old saints mean by change and what the young pastor means by change is so radically different. So then the young pastor leads the very change that he or she believes they're supposed to be doing. And then the old saints resist. That's the point where if if the pastor's not careful, he'll double down. He'll He'll... I don't know, he'll like bring God into the equation. Well, if you are people of faith, if you really cared about lost people, stuff like this, he'll, he'll put moral value into their resistance. That would be doubling down. Yeah. Rather than the counterintuitive move of moving toward them to figure out what are they protecting? What are they afraid of? Am I a threat to them? Which all of those curious moves dissolves resistance. But most leaders, we're just, we're type A. We're, we, we're on mission. We see the resistance as the enemy and then we apply more force you know we apply more pressure on them all that does is entrench them and mm -hmm. and then you're at an impasse and then typically stereotypically the young pastor becomes the scapegoat he, he either quits or is fired and then they all can't stand each other and talk badly about each other that would be yeah, yeah. that's yeah that's pretty descriptive it's i mean and it's common i mean I, I think a question i have for our listeners when you are Describing this, so if there's a young pastor who has come in and transitioned similar to what you did, 
Yeah. Um, what are some of the key mistakes you see? And, and mistakes is a hard word, maybe. I wouldn't even use that because that sounds factual. I mean, what are some things you've seen that they do that you wish you could say, hey, maybe don't do this. Don't try to do this so fast or whatever. Do you, do you have anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have plenty of mistakes of my own to draw from too. I, I don't know how you come in as a young leader without making about a hundred mistakes. I, yeah, yeah. So, so I think step number one is to actually set that expectation in you and for your people. And that was mm-hmm. something I did early. Uh, my elders were great. They, they, when they hired me, they actually called one of my references, and the reference Pete, his name was. He said, "Well." He's a bit rough around the edges, but he's got the raw materials. If you give it a few years, I think it's probably going to work out. That was his <laughs> reference, which was actually really accurate. So when the elders brought me in, they understood we're getting a rookie. He's all he's all spit, right? Like he's all energy and enthusiasm. Uh, if we can give him some guardrails, and we think this will work out. And so the whole church kind of understood. And I think that's step number one. I think the first mistake is for a young leader to act like they know what they're doing when they don't. Yeah, I think it's much more powerful as a leader just to confess. Like everyone knows you've never done this before, so stop pretending you have. Just just get out and say. So people knew, like the people in our church, they knew that I had never preached every week before. Therefore, once in a while, the sermons were pretty rough, honestly. Uh, but rather than trying to pretend like I'm some phenomenal preacher, just, you know, I, I grew into it. Former president of Lifeway, Jimmy Draper, said that he knew how to run Lifeway until he got here. And, you know, in the last couple of years, I would even say for myself, like, I've just made so many st- mistakes, just throwing energy everywhere. It's a lot of trial and error. Right, that's right. Uh, well, this might work, it may not. And then, and then we spend a lot of time beating ourselves up over the mistakes instead right. of giving ourselves grace that we're in a season of learning. Well, I mean, if we're honest, I think that's because other people spend a lot of time beating you up over mistakes. Well, that's true. You know, so it's just learning how to navigate that. It's actually a really good tool to chase them to the bottom. It hmm. is like where they say, hey, Ben, here's what you did wrong. And you're like, well, actually, it's much worse than that, man. Like. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me tell you some other things. It's very disarming. It very quickly divides the room into the bullies who actually have no interest in the mission of Lifeway and the people who are moved by your vulnerability and like, hey, this is a good guy with a good heart. I'm in. I'm going to. So so that's a that's something I did early. Wouldn't you say, Steve, too, like if you're a pastor and someone comes and they start to let you know all the areas that you've maybe blown it, it seems like a good play would be as much as you're beating me up right now, trust me, I've beaten myself up a lot worse. I mean, I've really struggled through these decisions as well. Yeah, I think it, it just depends, right? If, if the, usually I think it's good to say, oh, that's right, yeah, because they're expecting resistance. Yeah. And then I, I try to only own the mistakes I made. Like sometimes people will accuse me of things. And I'm like, actually, that's not what happened at all. Let me okay. tell you what happened and then see what happens. But but here's an example, guys. Like within when I moved in, we had 146 people, including kids. Our first weekend, the church was 1.1 million dollars in debt on some mm. raw dirt. We had we had 18 acres of land in Broomfield that they had bought before I came. They could only do interest only on the payments. It was really tight. Yeah, I knew nothing about buildings, fundraising, and very early on, I declared that we'd be in a building in 18 months. Now, it took us seven and a half, eight years mm-hmm. and three capital campaigns to get into a building. 
And I, I had some people in the room laugh when I announced it, but it was a well-meaning laugh. They're like, look, he's a rookie. Like he, he's just an idiot. That's all. He's a nice kid, right? Like it's that kind of thing. <laughs> but then I had some that really enjoy to this day, really enjoy reminding me of that. Hmm. Remember when you said that? I'm like, yeah. And I also remember the 10 times you brought it up. Like, yeah. So I've, I've used this line of people. I'm like, look, in America, there's this thing called double jeopardy. And I've already been on trial for this crime and I paid the sentence. You can't try me again, right? <laughs> like just the idea that like you are getting something out of beating me up that's not healthy for you or me. Let's talk about healthy timelines for change because I, I, you're kind of hitting on that. I think we often come in as young leaders and mm-hmm. I know Lindley and I, we've, we like to be aggressive, yeah. set aggressive goals. Like on a scale yeah. of slow to fast, we did, a, um, we did a personality assessment on this one time through NAM, and um, they're slow and fast. We were off the charts fast, yeah. which is, you know, really good in some ways because it keeps things moving. It's really bad in other ways. And when we yeah. come into a church, it's kind of like six-pack abs in six weeks kind of thing. Like, right, I'm right. going to turn this church around by Easter kind of thing. So how do, how do you mitigate that? I, I don't believe... This is my opinion. So I, I'm not a scientist on this, but I'll throw it out there and then you got you guys can agree or disagree. I don't believe you can build any kind of culture that's lasting in less than four years. Mm-hmm. So I think any change you're trying to bring, I'm familiar with that I that the six week abs idea. But what happens is the leader shows up, brings all this energy, but they don't actually have the hearts of the people. They just have coercion. You know, your people aren't comfortable standing up to a strong leader. And so they go along to get along. Yep. And then you move on to your next thing and there's no root system at all in that thing you built. So I'm every every initiative we've done as a church, I'm trying to measure it at the three year mark and the five year mark. And what I'm looking for is is vision coming back to me from the people. So, for example, we have done a very aggressive affordable housing initiative on our land. We now have a building on our land and we tithe our land to our city. So we don't just tithe our budget, we tithe our property. And one of the things that we're doing for our city is building affordable housing on our land. Now, that took eight years. Um, and, and we are in a wealthy neighborhood, so we've had a lot of resistance on building low-income housing in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But in my congregation, what I'm looking for is people coming to me envisioning me about why we should be doing affordable housing. That's when I know culture's been built. Yeah. And I think anything less than three years, I'm pretty suspicious of it, honestly. That's my opinion. I, I've not measured it, so I'm, I might be wrong, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of slow, deep change because I want that culture to be there when I leave. And what's interesting is I'm now three months out from leaving, leading that church. We have a new leader now. So that's the test of my leadership is how much of the good culture is still moving without me. Yeah. Are you still at that church? Are you still worshiping there? I, I am. I've stepped back for three months, but literally this Sunday is my first Sunday back. Yesterday was my first day back in the building after being gone since Christmas. So did you and the new pastor kind of work out a system of, mm-hmm. of that? I mean, what was the conversation like there? Right. So it's still in play, but the idea was when we hired the new pastor, the idea was if it's good for him, the congregation, and for me, that I'll stay in a part-time supportive role. I'll preach Mm -hmm. once in a while, and I'll be basically his cheerleader. So he and I have been meeting the whole time I've been on leave. We're calling it a sabbatical, but honestly, I'm just getting out of his way. I'm probably working harder than I've worked in a long time. Mm -hmm. So it's really just an excuse to be invisible, let him establish. 
So he and I be meeting behind the scenes, and then um, I'll I'll just kind of show up to church. I, there, there won't be any great fanfare. I'll just start attending again, and then I think my first sermon is in May. So that'll be five months after he stepped in. And then in my opinion, it's really whatever he and the elders think, but in my opinion, we won't know how this is going probably till about August mm-hmm. to decide, should I be around? I, I don't think I'll be the problem in the sense that I'm not a control freak. I don't need to be in the center of attention. But just in the fact that 16 years of leadership, my shadow might be in the way anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he and the staff and the elders are all very aware that the, the, he and the elders can decide at any time. No, we really need you out of the way, and all that. No problem with me. What was the conversation like? Proactively saying that you know, you guys, please tell me that if I'm in the way, how did you go about handling that and saying, you know, who is going to talk to me and tell me, hey, this is hard, or yeah. or how did that go? Oh, it's a, it's such a great question, Lindley, and obviously talk about change management. This might be the biggest change the church has felt. Mm. Um. I, it was very important to me that I advise the elders on who to choose, but mm-hmm. we hired an outside consultant who led us through the whole process. So I wasn't leading us on how to do it. And he also sifted all the candidates. I was like step three in the interview journey. So they, the candidates had done a lot of work with the elders before they ever got a phone call from me. Um, and then it was important to me because I'm an elder or I was an elder at the church until I stepped down. It was important to me that I did not have a vote in who we chose. Hmm. I just didn't want my hands. I didn't want to be responsible, partly for my own well-being because I'm over-responsible. I take too much responsibility, which is not a good thing, by the way. So it was important to me the elders choose, and then they, and our new pastor's name is Zach, and he's a fantastic guy. He happens to have been a member of our church for seven years. Uh, we did a national search, and he came out as our top choice. So I've known him for 10 years. He's a He was the local Young Life leader before we hired him. He's taking a similar journey to me. He's never been a lead pastor before, but he's an experienced ministry veteran. Um, and so then the, dis- the discussion was all through the interview process. It was me and the elders talking frankly about it. It was Zach and I talking frankly. I assume Zach and the elders are talking frankly, but I, I don't know. My biggest fear, which I've named to the elders and to Zach, is that he's such a decent human being, he would never come to me and say, here's what's best, you need to be gone. Um, that's, my, that's my biggest concern. And then I guess my second concern is that I, my wife and I really have poured it all out for this church, that mm-hmm. we actually wouldn't recognize when we need to go for our sake. That mm-hmm. would probably be my other yeah. concern. But what you're describing, Lindley, is like a power thing, and I didn't want anything to do with the power. Like, I don't want power. So so I don't have any actual hierarchical power in the church. I'm now an associate pastor. I'm about three levels down the, the org chart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not coaching Zach. I think that would be inappropriate that the previous pastor coaches him. So I'm his cheerleader. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to be a big force of encouragement in his life, a listening ear, but he's got other people who are mentoring him. So we really set up the power dynamic, I think, to give it success. Those would be some of the things we've done. It's interesting. Um, both churches we have left, we they were, it was pretty abrupt. And so, it, of course, there's a natural grieving process for the church. But then also, it is hard on them to figure out how to find the next pastor, and they don't have any guidance. I mean, 
I think it's so interesting that more churches don't do kind of what you said, because a lot of churches are transitioning because a pastor is older and retiring. Yeah. And so I wonder why there's not more of a practice of, hey, I'm going to retire. I want to step away in six months, so let's start this process right. into a healthy way. I guess it just surprises me that this is not a more common story. Yeah, we studied Kerry Newhoff and how he transitioned because his was slow and steady. And then um, Pete Scazzaro to Rich Velotis was mm-hmm. another model. Hmm. Uh, Southeast Christian, uh, Bob Russell to Dave Stone to Kyle mm-hmm. Eidelman. That was like a 25-year. That was incredibly, yeah. incredibly long. But let's see, let's see. My elders, uh, we started discerning this process in June of 2020. We, we hired a consultant in December of 2020. We announced to the church in March of 21 that I'd be leaving, and then we brought Zach on in December of 21. So that mm-hmm. is a 18-month-ish process, Yeah, yeah. Steve, can we dive into the emotional side of this conversation for listeners who maybe they're not pastors or church leaders, but change is just hard for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Why is it hard? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I I think because, you know, my field being chronic anxiety, being generated by assumptions and expectations, hmm. when something has not changed, you can count on it. And, and when something does change and you don't know what's happening, you make assumptions about it. And it just, it causes you emotional damage. So all change is hard. Um, you know, there are people, like you guys said, you're kind of full speed ahead people, but you would probably still struggle with change, especially when you're not the ones leading it, right? Like there's that too. Sure. So I think we all mm-hmm. struggle with change. Some of us just prefer to be the change agent so we don't have to deal with it as much. <laughs> well, here's um, a test case because this has been me before, but I also know pastors who sometimes they... They go to a church, and then when I ask them how it's going, they speak about their stodgy traditional church members as if they're fools. Right, that's right. The people the, that got them to this point. The human, the humanity or human-sized part of what you emphasize often is, what would you say to that guy who's out there like maybe judging all those people instead of trying to understand them? Yeah. What's going on in his mind that he's so certain? Right. I love that question, and it's such an important question. I would say, number one, that guy should stay away from any conference that makes fun of the congregation. I've been to those pastor conferences. Mm. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Are there uh, are there conferences like that? Oh Well, there's certainly speakers that get on stage and win over the audience of pastors by complaining about the congregants. Oh, yeah. wow. You know? Mocking call, them. Calling them sheeple and things like that. As if, as if you and I, like if you cut us and send our blood to the lab, we're human. We're not a different mm-hmm. species called pasta. Um, <laughs> I, I think one of the things that really helped me, I don't remember who I heard this from, talking about when you, were, when you go to a church as a pastor, you naturally think that, that you are there for the people to learn from you. <laughs> and it's not even necessarily ego-based. It's just that you were trained for ministry and you opened the Word and there it is. And I think it was Ortberg saying, what if you went to that church because God wants you to be formed in a certain way and therefore the people to help form you are in that congregation. So it's a, it's a hard sell after 15 years. Did I, did I teach more or learn more from my people? Mm. Touch and honestly, touch and go hard to say. So I think that's number one is every congregation. I don't care how stodgy the the stereotype about fighting about the color of the carpet, which by the way, I'm I'm yet to meet a church that actually does that. Yeah. Um, There's still saints in there that, they know the word. They love unchurched people. Like, so I think the first thing for the pastor to do is to stop making generalizations 
Mm. You, you could never get away with it if you're talking about a racial group, for example, and yet you talk about the congregants like they're one monolithic block. Everybody's this. The, uh, yeah. And that's actually a sign that you're in anxiety's grip when you're using exaggeration. It's one of the things we measure when I come in is, is I'm listening to your vocabulary. You know, all the people are this. And well, wait a minute. I bet there's five that really love what you're doing. And, and what you, what your job is, is to realize that your vision is going to take a few years. So to not take you, what you say too seriously, let it kind of cultivate. And then what do these people want? What's their faith story? What are their hopes and dreams one at a time? That's where I think I'm, I'm old school with pastoring. I'm, I'm shepherding one at a time over coffee. Tell me your story. And, and then if, if we're actually encountering resistance, moving toward the resistor, what's going on? Am I, is there something I'm doing that feels like a threat to you? If you can have a human-to-human conversation, you'll, you'll be blown away how much of that resistance you can dissolve. Hmm. And the other thing that happens in those stereotypical churches is the people who, they may not have any hierarchical power. They may not be an elder or something but they've just been around so long that no one moves forward unless Bob votes yes. They just have that veto power. And so you're never going to win Bob over. His mother gave the land to the church and she's now buried on it, for example. So stop trying to win him over. Let him vote no, but just you have to build a coalition around him, not against him, but in system series called Finding the Motivated Change Agents. And for every Bob who's angry and loud in a church meeting, there's five others that are quietly keen to get on with it. Just meet with them and go get on with it with them. I, I was coaching this very situation, a young pastor, traditional church, and he really wanted to reach the local school. He wanted to help these kids. They were low income. Their families were low income. And he was getting all this resistance from just a few so-called old timers. And I'm like, let him resist. Who's, who's with you? And, you know, after about a year, he had so many people going to that school with him because he just, he didn't blow off the resistors. He just didn't give them any power. He didn't feed them by doubling down. That's what pastors do. They try to win everyone over. No, just let them resist. So that happened with our affordable housing. We had a number of neighbors very resistant and we told them, we said, listen, we understand why you're against this. We understand that you're concerned it'll destroy your property values, your so we think when we get up in front of city council, we recommend you vote no. Like get up and say your piece and vote against us and we will be neighbors and we'll see you next week. Like it just, mm-hmm. right? because we're not going to be able to coerce them. The only other option is to become a coercive leader. And goodness me, I mean, every week there's a new article about that kind of leader and it's it's truly abusive. What is it about human nature or ourselves that, I mean, why do we do that? Why do we focus on the two negative when there's 98 positive? My, my wife's a therapist and she studies a guy named Kurt Thompson. So I'm, I'm copying this third hand. Mm-hmm. But Lisa was saying to me recently, she said a, a shame message or a negative message takes less than three seconds to lodge in your body and chemically have a reaction to it. Like your body actually floods. And a positive message or a compliment takes 60 to 90 seconds. Mm. I think that rule isn't exactly about what we're talking about, but I think there's a lot there that we just are pre-wired to focus on the negative. And I think most pastors, 
because we are good with people, the shadow side is where people pleases. And we think it's gospel, but it's just anxiety. Winning people over, we think, oh, that's what the Lord wants me to do. I, you look at all of the people Jesus let down, it's pretty stunning how many times Jesus looked at someone and let them walk, did not give in to their expectations, and built his coalition around motivated change agents. I mean, you talk about the Pharisees versus the disciples. You can actually study the Gospels through this lens. But I think what happens is we, we are afraid of Bob. He's, he's like the stalwart in the church. His mother gave the land. Uh, you know, you preach and then you go by her, her grave on your way to your car every week. And he uses definitive language like over my dead body and all this kind of stuff. And so I think we get intimidated to stand up to him. And when you try to stand up to him and you say, well, God wants us to do, you kind of blame God. It doesn't work. And then you just go home and you're anxious. Better just to honor Bob and say, man, without your mother's donation, we would not be here. There's no question. Uh, All I'm trying to do is reach your grandkids, Bob. That's what I'm trying to do. I'd love your help, but I'll I'll do it with or without you. No problem. Now, who's with me? And you try not to do it in a public showdown. I've had a couple of those. Yeah, Sometimes you have to, but generally you're doing it quietly. You're not meeting with others over coffee talking about Bob. You're just saying, look, here's the school. The teachers have asked for help. I think the gospel implores us to go do it. What do you reckon? Do you want to just come along? But a lot of pastors try to use words to convince people instead of just say, why don't you come with me? So like affordable housing, I, I had a number of people say, what in the world? Why is our church getting into affordable housing? Where's the gospel? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Why don't you come to the next meeting when I'm meeting with the city's housing manager? And let's sit down and, and I'll have her explain some things. Hmm. And, and instead of my words, they've come, they're seeing me in action in the city. They're seeing when I walk into that city office, seven employees, there's Steve, like there's the pastor of Discovery and they're all stopping and chatting like the favor we have as a church because of this work. Hmm. And then I'm using the car ride there and back to say, here's what we're doing. Here's why, like in Colorado where people are skeptical, Mm-hmm. We're doing something so mm-hmm. that the skeptics, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. This issue hits so close to home for Lindley and I because one of the greatest regrets we have in ministry is related to a change I instituted in my first church. We had some very close friends that were our neighbors. We would actually cook meals for one another. They would cook for us one night. We'd cook for them. And uh, I instituted a new change in the church that I was convictional about, and that is that every child that was going to be baptized would go through a little class to make sure they understand the elements of the gospel. Uh, Spencer, who I hope he's listening. Spencer, I'm really sorry. Um, Spencer didn't feel like that was biblical for me to require his kid to go through a class. He wanted her to be baptized as soon as possible and told me that if you don't baptize her without this class, I'll just go down here to the swimming pool and do it. And I doubled down. And I'm, I, I'm so sorry about it. I regret it. I, I basically stood my ground and said, well, either follow the policy, I can't make exceptions just for you, or, you know, go to another church. It's basically what happened. Well, and, and where this got really tricky is that Spencer's wife and I were very best friends. And Spencer's daughter, Addie, and our daughter, Ava, were very best friends. And we lived next door. And then there was this huge wall between our yards of, well, don't go into their yard and don't go into ours. And we ended up moving like we had to move. Um, it was so bad and so unhealthy. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's another pastor and pastor's wife who has this situation where yeah. it's really, so then it was hard on us because I lost because of his double downing. Yeah. I lost my best friend 
Ava lost her best friend. And, and and now, as we look back, it was one of those young rookie mistakes that right. was very cost, costly. What's terrifying about it is it took me at least five years to get over my stubbornness to admit that I handled that wrong. Mm-hmm. I was so convinced right. that I was doing the right thing that and, and wanting to be right, I lost a relationship and it wasn't worth it. Right. Uh, and I, so- I think there's a lot of pastors out there that struggle with that. Like I've made a decision do I double down? Do I hold my ground? Or do how do I come back with grace? Or how do I keep this relationship? It's so tricky, isn't it? Because like you, you really question why are we putting church planting into the hands of the young? <laughs> On the one hand, they had they had the energy required. It's such a outpouring yeah. of energy. And on the other hand, this is the shadow side. And I, like my heart breaks for both of you guys, because it is a common story. Like Ben you're feeling massive pressure to try to get something going that you believe to your core. And then Lindley, you're having to live with his decision that has profound impact. Whether you agree with his decision or not, you don't really have much freedom to decide. And and yet you and your daughter get the consequence. It's I, I have a number of mistakes that I profoundly regret. What was interesting is there was about a three to six month period after we announced my stepping down that um, I couldn't, ma- I was flooded with regret. Like that was my predominant experience mm-hmm. from like March till about August was leadership regret. Just like, oh, I, I thought I'd be, because I did not hand over a flagship church to Zach. It was a post-COVID church. Attendance was down, giving was down. Yeah. Pre-COVID. Not the we way you really imagined coming. it. No. And my ego had connection to what I was handing over. And to this day, like our church is struggling financially. Like we're, we're getting by, but it's tough. Um, and so I really resonate with the, the decision. Like, oh, man, I wish I could have done that differently. It's, yeah. it's really painful. You're right. And you're right. The energy of youth is what motivates many church planners because it is a massive mm-hmm. energy. I don't know that I could do it again, Steve. Like I, it couldn't, just, I couldn't do it. <laughs> it's so much energy. But at the same time, you make a lot of mistakes, and the sooner you can realize you make a lot of mistakes and just own them, uh, the better off. One thing that we had talked about is a few ways that you um, that a leader can demonstrate healthy leadership through change. I mean, is there something that you you advise pastors on? I really do advise pastors. First of all, like if, if we took Ben's test case, is to get curious about yourself. Hmm. Like, where is this coming from? Is it really a biblical conviction? Is there something else going on? And I'm suspicious of myself, so I typically want some help in curiosity about why I'm doing what I'm doing. That would be a professional or a friend. If you're leading change, you have to be curious about the people who are resisting. If if our first impulse is to double down and push through, I think I have a whole teaching on dissolving resistance in my online community that I have. It's it's when you encounter resistance, what are the tools to dissolve resistance in a in an emotionally healthy way, not a manipulative way? Because we take it personally. That's probably what happened to Ben too, particularly mm-hmm. when you're young. Is the person's like, well, I'm going to be the exception. Well, no one gets to be the exception. Like you, this this mm-hmm. kind of papa bear shows up, and so learning. My experience is you can't stop that defensiveness. It's more like, okay, there's my defensiveness. What's on the other side of it? Can I, can I let the defensiveness show up, get in me? But then, what what's going to be helpful is what happens next. 
And for me, the most powerful things I'd be curious about myself, what's going on in me? Why am I making such a big deal out of this? Oh, it's because it is a big deal. And usually I don't know. I need help to know if, it, if it's a big deal or not. And then secondly, why are they making such a big deal out of it? And it's almost always driven by some form of fear. Um, a lot of people love their church and they see the pastor as a threat to the thing they love. And as long as you act the way you're acting, you're just a bigger and bigger threat. But if you can move toward them, get to know them. What's going on? What, what's your concern? And so, for example, like a, a, a classic thing would be like in any staff meeting I led, I have my visionaries and my naysayers on my staff. I have my big picture people and my concrete thinkers. If I'm not careful, because I'm a big picture guy, if I'm not careful, I'll I'll treat my concrete thinkers like second-class citizens. Like they'll be the yeah, but, you know, those people? Yeah, yeah but Steve, what about this? And I'll be irritated because I'm, I'm full of my adrenaline. Like I'm about to change the world. Just get out of my way. I'm about to change the world here. Meanwhile, tomorrow I've forgotten, honestly. Let's yeah. be honest. I was like, what was I all excited about? But in the moment, I'm all caught up in my- Absolutely. I'm, more about hormones than the gospel, honestly. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Steve, you and I would be a disaster together. We should never <laughs> well, serve on staff together. <laughs> and so we would be fine on staff together. We would actually do very well, so long as we give equal power to the air butters. Mm. So what I had to learn to do, and it took me a few years, is when, like, let's call her Sally, would say, yeah, but what about this? Because she can hear, this guy has not thought this through very well at all. She knows she's smarter than me in the moment. And what she's trying to do is protect the thing she loves from my shadow side. But I'm feeling exposed in a meeting. I'm feeling called out. And it's entirely possible that she has thought of things that I haven't thought of. And then I feel like an idiot. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I'm no longer able to move toward her because I'm flooded with my anxiety of feeling stupid. So I punish her. And I say things like, well, you just need more faith or, you know, that kind of nonsense. Better to say, listen, everyone in this room knows that I'm an idea guy. And I know some of you make fun of me about it. And that's fine. You can make fun of me. Can I just say that the reason we're here is because of that gift? Hmm. I'm nimble. I'm an entrepreneur. And I got us to this point. But what's also true is the reason we aren't in trouble is because some of you. Because some of you are very wise and I get excited. So what we need is we need you to sit through my excitement and then those of you who are visionaries pile on, but then we need you guys who are listening to this and we need you to pick it all apart. Tell us everything we haven't thought of. We need both. And that just diffuses in me a defensiveness. It also gives permission for the yeah butters because they actually might have really helpful concerns. And what I normally do is say, let's get it all out on the table. Like, tell me every concern you have and we won't put any faith value on it. Like, we'll just see that as a gift. It just that's one simple way to dissolve. That's really good. Yeah. Steve, you mentioned your wife's a therapist. I didn't have um a good understanding of what therapy and counseling was early in my pastoral ministry. That would have been a tremendous gift for me to understand that. Because if I could go back, here's what I would have done. When when I realized that I was becoming obsessed with my disagreement with Spencer. Yeah. I wish I had gone to a therapist and said, Can you help me understand why I'm fixated on this? There's yeah. something behind this that's really a fear of mine or an insecurity. I think what was going on with me is I was afraid that people would see me as soft if I relented. Yeah. And I wanted the congregation to see me as a authoritative leader that would stand as Winston Churchill. 
And I was afraid that I would be, you know, mocked for making a rule and changing the rule for a friend. But it's really all that is about perception and wanting to be perceived as a certain way, which is totally unhealthy. It's also caricaturing Winston Churchill because Spencer was not Hitler, right? That's the other thing I hear in that. <laughs> That's so good. Like when you're faced with a Putin, yep. you need a, a confident, boldly. Putin needs that, but the neighbor didn't, for example. Yeah. That's exactly Easy to right. say now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Well, Steve, okay, let's let's wrap it up with this. There's a there's someone out there, let's say it's a pastor's wife. She is married to a man who took her to a church that's not responding to his leadership well. And she doesn't know what to do. It's not going well. Change is creating conflict in their marriage. She doesn't like the way he's handling it. What would you say to her? Oh man. I think the pastor's wife in that situation is woefully neglected. So I would say to her, and I would say to the pastor listening, um, use time and money to give her all the help she needs, mm. like, and use church money. Uh, I would say, get church budget for your wife to, and what does that look like? It, I think it can look like professional help, like therapy. Um, I think it can also look like the pastor simply understanding the lose-lose situation that many wives are in, mm. where the husband's making a decision. She may or may not agree, but she gets impacted. Mm. Um, so just recognizing that. And then I think for the wife, I would say you have to have friends where your pastor's hat is off. There's, and that, so they're not in the church. That You have to have friends where you can be human being and you might talk all about the church. You might not even mention it. But if you don't have that outlet, and then I think no one understands what it's like except other pastors' wives. So then I think that's also really important. I'm longing to see more conferences for this. I I, I think two of the more neglected populations are pastors' wives and youth ministers. Hmm. And I piggyback off of that for the pastor's wife, like myself. I'm this is me. Yeah. That is, you know, an Enneagram Eight challenger. Not sweet in the least. I wish I was. It's a goal of mine eventually. But, you know, so when we when we transition and things are hard or I maybe don't like the way things are going, there has to be other pastor's wives who do what I do and just start challenging. And so, you know, what is the advice to the pastor's wife who isn't, a, you know, comfortable just saying, whatever you say is fine or whatever you think, I'll I'll be there with you. I mean, Good question. I'll ask, he'll say something, he'll come home and tell me about a situation and I'll say, well, um, and and I, I'm self-righteous about it. I mean, I, I'm admitting that, but I can say, well, you know, why don't you do it this way? Or why don't you do it that way? And I'm meaning it in my own mind very kindly. Like, have you considered this? But he hears it as an attack of. I only hear one thing. You think I'm an idiot. Yeah. You think I haven't even thought through that. So my question is for the pastor's wife that is like me, how can we learn to communicate a little bit softer to where we don't have to go away from who we are in that challenging personality, but also Mm. can learn to be more gentle? I mean, even with church members, I mean, when you were talking about Bob, I was like, I'd like to just tell Bob to go find another church. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean, but that's not that's not right. That's not the right thing to do. It might be. I don't well, know that that's not right. I'm I mean, curious, I like to think me, I'm right. <laughs> why Why is, if you're a challenger to your core, why is your goal to become more sweet? I'm confused by that. Because I think that feels to me the way that a pastor's wife should be. Oh. We should, you know, 
hand out cookies to the deacons and wear pearls and lipstick and be and this may all get edited but <laughs> um you know there's this there's this um, mold she doesn't mold. feel like she fits the mold like i i mean steve you can't see this but i have tattoos down my arms and my insecurity plays out in that do i do i be me or do i fit the mold yeah i think and what's you, the repercussions on ben if i'm me i think that's my bigger thing my guess is that ben's a huge fan of you when you're you <laughs> I, my guess is it would break his heart for you to try to squeeze into some absurd mold that doesn't fit you. I think it's Andy Stanley that says that my words carry 50-pound weights on them. I, I have not been able to have a fair fight in years because somebody comes hard at me and I go gentle at them and they feel punched because I'm the pastor. I'm the guy that opens the Bible. So sometimes, Lindley, you can say things that Ben can't because you're not seen in that light that he's seen in. So I think this is another place, though, Steve, where you mentioned like counseling is just so helpful mm-hmm. to go before a third party and say, hey, how should we handle this? Right. She wants to say right. something. Yes. I feel nervous about her say something. Help me understand what's going on in me that I would be nervous about it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Ben can get to the bottom of his nervousness. Yeah. But boy, Lindley, I'd say if, if you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that's the end of the story. It doesn't mean you don't have rough edges and a shadow side, but the the, the thing that repelled me, because what I'm listening for as a system theorist is assumptions, right? That's always, if if Jesus is the truth and the truth sets us free, then assumptions keep us bound. So when I heard you say, I'm a challenger, I'm an Enneagram 8, and my goal is to be sweet, my my what I felt inside me was like, oh no, that sounds terrible. That it is. It's like, bi- that is a terrible goal. Trust me. It's never yeah. worked. It's not worked. <laughs> but the the fact that you're actually a gift mm-hmm. as a challenger, and then it's a matter of how do I to I I agree with Ben. How do I take the gift from being a reactive response to a de- deliberative play? Yes. Uh, that's that. That's definitely the the word really there. Good. Mm-hmm. Steve, always a pure delight to get to hang out with you. Thanks so much for all you're doing. Glass House is a production of Lifeway. It's produced and edited by Angie Elkins. Sound engineering by Dale Sandberg. Original music by Robert Elkins. Photography by Rebecca McVeigh. And artwork by Heather Berzinski. We are your hosts, Ben and Lindley Mandrell. Thanks for listening.